Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with my partner, Ross Fabini at Village Global, and Misha Esipov, co-founder and CEO, Nova Credit. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Misha, why don't you describe a little bit, what is Nova Credit and what's the path that led you to start Nova Credit? Well, there was a lot in that question. So Nova Credit solves the problem of uh, financial access for, for immigrants. The root of that problem is that your financial identity doesn't actually move with you as you move around the world. You know, the sort of our bit of our origin story, we were in, in grad school at Stanford, sniffing around, you know, financial services, fintech, doing a bunch of uh, user interviews every week with classmates, friends, anyone we could, we could get time with. And one of the themes that uh, really started to emerge is, you know, half the students are foreign and 100% of that half would tell us the same narrative of can't get a credit card, can't get an auto loan, can't get a student loan. In order to get to a cell phone plan, I need to like co-sign with a friend to get an apartment lease. I need to co-sign or put down six or 12 months deposits. And it just became like brutally obvious that, you know, there's a systems problem that people move around the world. The world's getting increasingly globalized. And every time somebody crosses a border, they, they have to start over. Uh, and, and, and the reason for it is, is not that you know, the banks or landlords or credit bureaus are discriminating. It's that no one's actually solved what is a really hard problem that when a recent immigrant applies for, you know, a credit card in the U.S., the card issuer will go and check with the U.S. bureaus. The U.S. bureaus will check their database. And they'll be like, I have no idea who this is. They'll respond with like null, like we don't know who this is. And the bank will say, oh, we don't know who this is. We can't approve them. Therefore, rejected. And we're like, that just doesn't make sense because, you know, these are highly creditworthy people. Uh, they're, you know, highly educated. They're earning well, uh, and yet they can't get access. Yeah. And Ross, before your Village Global Path, you invested in Nova Credit. What was sort of the, the thesis behind that investment besides Misha being super charming? What was the sort of market thesis? Well, let's not underestimate that Misha <laughs> being super charming. Actually, he and I met right after the pair demo day. Yeah, I think. that's right. So, folks on this podcast might remember I'm kind of obsessed with fintech infrastructure of Nova, which is a perfect example of where either by taking friction out or changing the power dynamic of who's getting approved for a loan or who's able to access money, you create whole new industries. So, I already had that idea. Misha's explanation of Nova is so cogent about the people that are being underserved. I, um, uh, it was sort of a, a manhandling grappling moment that then we got talking about the business and I'm pretty sure I wanted to invest on the spot. Yeah. You were, you were pretty aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I also remember I, 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 I had to be, <laughs> I think things were already done. Yeah. They were, yeah. We were, we were pretty wrapped up at the time. Yeah. Which I, I still appreciate to this day. Of course. Also worth well worth it. <laughs> You're kind. It's also worth mentioning that like Misha not, you know, is understating the connectiveness in Stanford University. I think there are probably five other entrepreneurs that we ended up investing in through him. So not only an exceptional company builder, someone who's just surrounding himself with other exceptional companies, then you can watch them compete to see who, who goes IPO first, which is fun as an investor. 
zooming out a little bit, for those who didn't listen to our episode of, of, with very good security, Ross, why don't you unpack your fintech infrastructure thesis just uh, a little bit? So if you look at, say, the venture community 10 years ago, it used to be really hard to access the gatekeepers of capital. You have to know somebody to know somebody to go down the sand hill, kiss the ring, get the capital. And that whole, that friction has collapsed and created markets like AngelList and seed funds and uh, a lot of new entre- entrepreneurship. Same thing with book publishing. It used to be that you had to, you know, know the right agent, the right person, go up to many, many floors in a skyscraper to meet the publisher that was going to get your book out to the Barnes and Nobles of the world. Amazon's collapsed that process as well and has enabled creators. I still think we're at the forefront of that collapse in financial uh, services that lets consumers, small businesses, any consumer of capital get access to money at the best rates that they can. Nova is an ideal example of this where you can just look at credit worthy people that should be able to get a credit card, a cell phone, uh, a place to live. And the support for saying, you should give that to me. I look like a trustworthy customer is just opaque. And therefore that person goes unserved or served very, very poorly because the people that they have to work with are the cost of capital. The part that's so exciting, I think, about Nova is when you're building that infrastructure, you enable all of the different service providers for all of the customers. So ultimately, Nova will be powering, be the technology powering everything from credit cards decisioning to housing decisioning to mortgage decisioning to lines of credit, corporate lines of credit, because you're re- you're rebuilding this infrastructure. And when you see that adoption, you get businesses like Nova, you get businesses like Plaid, you get businesses that are, that create whole new companies, whole new categories. And it's because they're shifting the trillion, multi-trillion dollar financial services landscape. So that's why it's interesting as an investor. The thing that was so exciting about, you know, Misha, frankly, is he was very clear on the mission he was going after. And he was very clear on the hard things he had to do. So great people, big idea, and very clear about like, this is the hard, these are the boulders we got to go through. Like those are people you want to be involved with. So Misha, you mentioned you were sniffing around in fintech. How did you sort of navigate the idea maze? Was this the first idea you chose, then you went with it? Or how did you sort of think about where exactly to to choose as your wedge and actually i always wondered this like if you had ended up at devry instead of at uh or instead of uh stanford would we be talking about like the 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 dominant bank for the for the uh under underemployed or under uh underbanked uh, i mean i have no idea what would have happened then but i think when when you know when i, when I first went to grad school i was Toying with a variety of ideas and, and, and candidly debating whether I really wanted to go into entrepreneurship. I started a, actually a, a food business, a food delivery business focused on immigrants at one point, which went nowhere, um, which I won't bore you with the, the thesis. Shocker. That could have been the big idea. <laughs> yeah, that could have been it. And then I spent a summer in, uh, working for a YC company, uh, basically as their like first intern, first employee, just trying to learn about the fintech space. And then I was like, okay, well, I've, I have some experience in finance. There's, there's, the space is interesting. There's a lot of smart people in it. Why don't I just try to learn more about it? And actually the, the original idea was I, I was obsessed with this arbitrage that my student loans were, you know, in the low single digits, like two, three, four percent. And my, my credit card APR was like 25 to, to 30 percent. I was like, wait, 
This doesn't make sense. It's the same underlying asset and it's me. I'm the credit risk. And yet there's such a different way to, to price my credit risk across these two different product categories. So that, that was actually the original idea. Nothing to do with the, you know, the immigrant subsegment, but it was in, you know, doing user research and just like listening to, you know, candidly listening to people's feedback that we started to stumble on, on this problem, on the problem of uh, financial access for, for immigrants and the ability to just clearly articulate a, such an acute pain for a growing subset of the population, uh, really is, is what steered us to, to, to move forward. Was this being done before? And if not, why not? And what is sort of the unique insight you guys brought to it? I mean, I think the why not is no one's been crazy enough to like really try it. Actually, we shouldn't under, understate that. Like the amount of like technology risk plus compliance risk plus risk of, you know, flying 3 million miles all around the world to work with all the different credit bureaus is both a huge undertaking and a really diverse set of skills you have to do just to accomplish it even before the fact it's just goddamn hard. Yeah. I mean, let me, maybe I'll share a little bit about how everything actually works. So when we first sort of identified this problem, we, we learned a ton about the U S credit reporting space, you know, two, three big credit bureaus, Experian, Equifax, TransUnion, about 50 billion in, in market cap between those three or among those three. And we quickly realized that these bureaus exist all around the world. I think 19 out of the 20 G20 economies, everyone but France has, has a credit bureau. Uh, and the reason for it is these big three U.S. bureaus have expanded all around the world. The World Bank and the IFC have continued to build them. You know, in order to have a healthy and enduring financial system, you need to have a central repository for whether people are good or bad borrowers. So these, these bureaus exist, you know, almost everywhere, but they don't talk to one another. And, and, and the reason they, they can't talk to one another is they're very different and complex data privacy regulations from one country to the next. Even within the EU, uh, they have different rules. And this is like even predating all the, the incremental complexity that comes from, from GDPR. You know, what Nova does is we've actually built partnerships and real-time integrations with the leading credit bureaus in the major markets that bring people to the U.S. So, you know, India, Canada, the U.K., Australia, you know, Korea, uh, you know, a number more markets, they send the majority of, of the annual inflow of immigrants and we build real time integrations into the leading bureaus in those markets and standardize the information so that we can create a single endpoint to allow our customers, meaning, uh, you know, banks and landlords to access data from all around the world in real time. I think whether the, the customer part has always been so interesting to me because when I talk to founders, I always am talking about how can you own the whole problem? How can you figure out whoever your end consumer is and deliver the whole, the whole solution? One, because you get paid more for the value, but also because otherwise someone else is going to screw you up between, you know, here and, and being the perfect experience. But you guys really had to go to market through partners because of the scale of the financial services industry and who you want to serve. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've had to go through, through partners for a whole host of reasons, but I think ultimately it's because the problem that we solve is a, is a many to many problem, right? There are, there are many countries from which, you know, people immigrate from, uh, and there are many uses of the data that we collect, you know, across the various verticals that I described, you know, financial services being the largest, but even within that, there are so many sub products that, that we could serve. And when you're, when you're trying to build, you know, get the flywheel going in a, in a many to many problem, 
you know, that's a, that's a nightmare, right? You need, you need to get to a critical mass of international supply, which, you know, we've, we've finally gotten to after, after a couple of years, um, in order to get to a product that is worthy of anyone's time to buy. And I think, I think that is one of the core reasons why this has never been solved before, that there's just so much upfront complexity and partnerships and technical build to assemble this infrastructure layer that, that we've built over the course of the last few years. Yeah, it's a, I'm curious how you, how you organize this internally. Cause my experience is of popping in, popping out. You're doing all the hard work. I'm just getting an update every now and again. The supply side was just ever growing. We've gone through like one more compliance hurdle, one more technology hurdle. We, we turn on another country. And then I used to write down in my notebook on the demand side, on the partnership side, who wanted to consume the data. Almost like a, a series of horses, like, oh, this one's going a little faster. Oh, no, no, this one stumbled. You know, I'm curious how when you're going and executing and, and suddenly like paperwork and in terms of move forward with one, with one partner and they go slower with somebody else. How did you manage that even from like a personal emotional commitment? Like, oh, this is the one that's going to work, you know, changing so often. I mean, it's exciting now because we've gotten so many across the finish line, then, you know, and up and live. But in the earlier days, was it, I'm curious how you manage that. Cause that was always my experience is you're pushing all these different directions on the demand side. Yeah. I think one of the biggest challenges in, in doing large enterprise sales into financial services is that your sales cycles are just brutal, right? It's, I think, I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, uh, this problem has never been solved is it's just, it takes so long to get started, right? You've got, it, it takes you years to assemble, you know, the data asset. I think this is true of the credit reporting space in general. It takes you years to assemble a data asset that's worthy of anyone's time and build a product on top of that. It then takes you years to assemble, you know, the information security standards and readiness and compliance programs and regulatory readiness to become, you know, a, a bureau, uh, or at least be, you know, be, be ready to operate in such a manner. Only when you have that ready can you credibly walk into a bank and say, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to become a vendor for you and, and clear their sales cycle. So when you're faced with such a, such a long, uh, sales cycle, you, you have to parallel track as a startup, right? You have to find the easy wins or I mean, none of them are easy, but you have to find the, 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 the quicker wins that can get you points on the board to keep morale high, to keep, you know, to get the product insights that you need to be ready to serve a bigger and bigger customer base. And so when, when I reflect on, you know, our strategy right after we, you know, we closed our seed, you know, we, we saw multiple verticals that we could eventually serve. You know, we are a data provider. And so in theory, we should be agnostic as to which use case we, we go after. And it's really a prioritization problem of, of like, where, where do you really start? And we knew we wanted to go after the large tier one banks because they have the global brands, they have the best product offering, but they're also the hardest to, you know, to get over the line. And so we, we, we work to de-risk that by going after smaller fintechs, by going after, you know, the property management vertical, which is incredibly fragmented and, and one I can, you know, spend a lot of time you know, talking about if we want to go there. Uh, and we've also, Let's go there. <laughs> we want to go there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so property management, like why, why that's so, so fragmented. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, why that ultimately? Because that was one of the the hardest pain points that we just kept kept hearing about from our from our consumer, right? From millions of folks enter the U.S. every year, and everyone needs to get a place to live, and 
if you're going to go and, and live in an apartment, you know, your landlord's going to ask you for a credit check and you don't have credit. And so the experience is you have to either go get a co-signer and like beg a friend to do that for you. Maybe you have a relative in the U.S., which which can help you do that. Or you need to put six or 12 months of deposit up front, which is just so onerous from a liquidity perspective to somebody who just you know, went through this resettlement process. You just don't have the cash yet. And we just, we, you know, we still hear about it from consumers, but actually solving that problem requires getting into the leasing agent to, you know, to accept this information, which requires going to their managers uh, and like the, you know, the leasing, you know, the regional managers and ultimately how they make, you know, these underwriting, what are ultimately are underwriting decisions, but to, to break into that decision process, you have to work with their the software packages that they use. So a lot of these a lot of these property management companies will use property management software providers like a Yardi or a RealPage or an Appfolio or an Entrada. And there's I mean, many out there. Unless you're going to go and 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 sell direct, which is incredibly hard in such a fragmented space, you have to work with partners uh, to get to any type of scale. How, actually, how did that start? So, like, once you had that insight, were you then like, okay, I got to go find a property manager that's building next to Stanford or Northwestern or what what have you to like find a first property manager that's going to move forward to drive the first integration, or is it integration make it available? Like, once you had the insight, how granular did you have to go to find? A first partnership to go do. Yeah. I mean, we, we looked at uh, what are the big pockets where there are a lot of immigrants, right? So, you know, San Francisco is about 35% foreign born. New York's about the same, but there are, you know, pockets in the Bay or, or piece or like areas in New York where this, where the concentration is even higher. Uh, you know, ironically, um, and this is a, a side, I'll, I'll go down a little tangent here just for, for fun. My, my high school in New Jersey, you know, recently it was all over the news. They had an article in the Times about this, this high school because we, that high school discontinued the football team because they couldn't fill the roster. Mm. And the reason for it is the area has so many immigrant families who are, you know, football isn't core to that culture, uh, and they couldn't fill the roster. That's, that's another example of a pocket where we saw a very large, uh, immigrant inflow. And so some of our first, some of our first customers were actually from the middle of New Jersey, like near my high school. And then, so did you go all the way down to like, is it the consumer then, Hey, take this solution to your property manager or to your, to the building? Or did you like, I'm going to target buildings that are in that area. Like the problem with going after the consumer is that if a consumer walks into a landlord, the same way if they walk into a branch and they say, Hey, here's a copy of this thing called a Nova report. They're going to say, what is this, right? When you're you're starting from scratch, like you don't have the brand uh, recognition and the credibility to do that. So you have to convince the decision makers to accept the information. And so that's a long process and you got to work through channels to make the user experience, you know, good enough for the actual decision makers. How did you also just even show like in this first one, two examples of like create enough leverage of, Hey, there's, there's money to be made. There's people to be rented to. You should, you should, you should be the first, the first, uh, you know, I always say the first penguin off the ice float, but it's actually, uh, Glenn Kelman has this incredible, Glenn Kelman's the CEO of Redfin. It's this great line. We want to be the first penguin off the ice float. And then he immediately digresses and like, oh, but that, that penguin usually gets eaten by a tiger seal. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I so think where, it's where to start. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a tough challenge. And this is, this is not one where, you know, we had the crystal ball at the beginning. Like we, it was a lot of trial and error and we tried to go direct and direct was really hard. We tried to go through the consumer and we ran into that challenge and ultimately where we, you know, where, where we've, uh, where we've really focused is working through partners. 
They have the scale. They need to differentiate against one another by continuing to improve. And this is a, you know, this is a, you know, an improvement for them to develop a differentiated offering to win more property management business. And what's a non-obvious learning that you've developed over time that has led you to do these partnerships successfully? One of the non-obvious learnings has been about like just managing your own expectations around how quickly you can get channels to, to work. I remember when we, when we first signed our first major partner, we were so excited because we we're like, Oh my God, we found the Holy Grail. Like, this is it. Like, <laughs> you know, we're, we're done. Um, and you know, it's been a slog. There's a channel enablement is no joke, right? Yeah. You, you've got to get in there. You have to motivate the sales team. You have to, and there's all sorts of, you know, tricks in the playbook for how you do that. You have to make sure that the end to end user experience is actually like, actually works. And when you're dealing with some of these partners who have incredibly legacy systems, like that is so hard to do. And this requires like a ruthless focus on, on detail and making sure that you're man, you're motivating the salespeople in your channel to, to really prioritize this. Actually, I remember, I think you guys were in the index offices when you signed the first property management. Probably. One. And we're like, it's, it's, it's done. And then like, it was like, I'm not going to say it was a year later, but it was a long time later. It's like, yeah, we finally, you know, got them to create a marketing plan so these people walk in the door so they can use the product and it's seamless and they'll get the credit hit. And it just, it's what you said is anything through the channel, through a partnership. It's like you've, you have to figure out a hundred little friction points that stick between here and there so that the, so that then it starts pulling through. Uh, Ross mentioned earlier that this is a, a company that's hard to do. You need technical risk, compliance risk, a lot of complexity. A startup can't, you know, have superpowers and everything. How have you thought about, you know, as you've grown and scaled the organization, like what to have a superpower in first? Or, or how have you thought about how to build for these various complexities where you're doing, you know, things across skill set? Going back to our, our founding days, right? It was, it was three of us, myself, uh, Nikki and, and, and Luke, our CTO. And Nikki also has sort of a business background. She's incredibly gifted with, with customers. And so like she went after partnering with customers. Uh, I went after partnering with international suppliers and Luke has, you know, built a world class system to connect the dots. And you know, as we think about prioritizing that, you know, this is a consultative sale. When you're dealing with a multi-year enterprise sale, it's not the like dial in for dollars, you know, SMB sale. This is, I'm, I'm, you know, that's maybe that's um, too, I'm oversimplifying that sale process, but like this is a multi-year sale process and, and having the partnership endurance and building real relationships takes time. And that's a, that's a skill that I think has served us on both our supply side and our demand side. Uh, and then, you know, having the, really the, the technical expertise to, to assemble this, this right. system. And what's the crux of what makes Nikki so good with customers? She has incredible charm, uh, resilience, and, and she's just, she's a bulldog with this kind of stuff, right? I mean, Ross, you've, you've met her a few just times. Unbelievable tenacity, persistence, plus optimism, you know, all mixed together. And also, frankly, is good in a, a small room having a thoughtful conversation as about what's possible as with the CEO of one of the world's largest banks. That's a very rare gift that she's got in spades. Yeah. Totally. You know? And it's, and I, I think we can't understate this. You know, we talk a lot about how, you know, you know, complex businesses are hard to build. And I think it's a, a huge advantage was coming to it with not one, two, but three full gears from the founding team on. 
Yeah, and I think uncommon. very quickly, one of the slightly more unconventional things we did was we hired a, a general counsel uh, who was the former head of legal and compliance at, at Credit Karma. And we just, we knew from the onset that if we're serious about selling to highly regulated tier one banks in a highly regulated industry, we had to start building that pillar from the ground up. So he was our, you know, our second business hire. And that's been such a win for us as, as, as we've grown. Yeah. I also remember that the, how celebratory you are when you hired them. That's a thing people don't talk about within the best fintechs is it is almost often like, Oh, we got this GC. It's a, it's such a necessary superpower, particularly the regulatory depth they need to have while also being able to operate in a startup environment. Just, you know, very, very rare, especially ones that scale. Yeah. And I think all the way up. Yeah. You know, one, one of the big missing pieces in our, in our DNA is, is, as we've grown is we actually never really had anyone who's worked at a credit bureau internally. It was actually built, you know, we are a, a consumer credit data business. And we provide insights on how to underwrite consumers. And we had nobody in the company for, you know, over two years who actually had done that before. And just a couple of months ago, we, we announced a really incredible hire, Sarah Davies, who, who built Vantage Score from scratch. She was, she was there for over a decade, uh, to just like inject the company with this consumer credit analytics and scoring DNA. And that's just been, that's been incredible to have. So. In financial services, it's necessary to understand and lean into the, to the, to the regulation. It's one of the moats and it's just, it's necessary to be successful and you guys have done it in spades. I often wonder how necessary that expertise is. You know, I've seen numerous companies, maybe insurance is the best example right now, where you bring in the experts and like the most innovative, the most innovative expert that understands the category. They often struggle with the the amount of flexibility that's necessary to build a startup environment. I wonder if you, someone even could have been successful. They certainly could have put it out landmines. And they, here's how the existing systems function, but there's often a a drag that goes with that expertise as well. Yeah, I mean the, the, this whole you know Fair Credit Reporting Act, Equal Credit Opportunity Act, like these two acts are are, are decades old. Right? The FCRA, I think, was actually first written in the 80s or 70s or 80s and the economy was incredibly different like it was you know much less digital and, and what that act had contemplated when it was first written you know is very limited to how the world has has evolved and finding you know uh, sharp legal minds who can learn how to operate in some of those gray zones and and and, and have the judgment to to feel comfortable as a business like that is a really really rare skill uh, especially that can that can do that in early stage so building that initial team early on and then building out the executive team now how how have you set out the the mission and and inspired people or how have you inspired people to to come in to 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 join the rowboat which is the three of you guys and now of course when it's the when it's the empire <laughs> yeah i mean we're we're a long ways away from from being an empire i'd say we're you know maybe we're a you know a, a long a long rowboat at this point uh, but i think there's the rebellion stage and then there's the empire stage you know and, you know i mean look i i think mission is incredibly important you know silicon valley right now is is it's just such a tight human capital market it's so hard to find talent. It's so hard to retain talent. You know, and there's so many smart people here who are getting, you know, thrown absurd figures and sums to, to go and, and work on various projects. So if you can't appeal to the emotional side of why somebody wants to dedicate a chapter of their life to something, like you don't stand a chance of winning A plus talent. 
Uh, and so our, you know, our mission around enabling immigrants to, to access capital and realize their potential is very core to, to our DNA. I mean, that's, that's why our founding team came together to actually, you know, put our best foot forward and, and, and change this. I think, you know, without getting into politics, like the current administration, you know, it, it, it's created a more, pol- like immigration has been a very polarizing topic. And so there's, you know, it's presented some challenges for us in, in adoption, but it's also helped galvanize our team to, you know, to just just how important solving this problem is in the environment that we're in. What are other companies in the space that address this similar population, but from a different angle? There's a few uh, immigrant-focused fintechs who have taken a very different approach to this problem. Rather than sort of a, a partnership and enabling and data approach, they've approached it more from like a direct-to-consumer perspective. So going out to issue credit cards to recent immigrants or, you know, uh, providing loan guarant- or, uh, guarantees on apartment leases or providing student loans to immigrants or auto loans to immigrants. You know, we'd love to enable all of them to have better risk management practices and, and serve them with the data that they need to really make an informed underwriting decision. But ultimately, you know, we, we, we see those as, as incredible customers that we would love to power rather than as, as threats to our core business. Cause our, our core business is, is really building pipelines, building infrastructure around the world. Actually, could you talk a little bit about the, the early stage fintechs that have been, um, inspiring to excuse me, that, that you have decided to work with where the, where those have existed you know because so often we talk about fintech companies because there's such a hurdle to bring them into existence a great path for the stripes plaids whatever the world are to go work with small more agile companies to help ref- refine the solution get in market build credibility to work with those bigger brands but did, did you guys go through that process like did you have Folks that were that were like that, that yeah, sort of I mean, small groups that you enabled. One of our earliest customers, uh, Empower, they're a, a student lender based in D- in DC, very much mission aligned, right? Ser- serving you know the same immigrant population with you know international student loans, and these are like big ticket loans to a population they don't have much data on. Uh, and we were able to significantly improve the quality of the data they were using to approve this population, you know, which was a critical component to helping them raise more debt capital because they had this capability. It's just, you know, that that's, and then from, you know, from a selfish perspective, being able to have, you know, an early customer just, you know, dramatically increases and accelerates your product learnings and, and being able to, you know, we wouldn't be in a position where we can now serve tier one banks if not for those early product learnings from, from smaller fintechs. Yeah. I think they don't talk a lot about it because you start to forget it as the company scales is how important those, not the, the, the customers you remember because they made a bet on you and you made a bet, a bet on them, but how important like, the existence proof of like, Oh no, this thing works. Or, oh, this thing works and we're seeing pull for Mexico. That's why we should prioritize Mexico versus that. You're just being in market is such a huge, a huge benefit. Where, where, you know, where the, the contrast to your, t- to your time, you're like, hey, I can go spend more time with a Goldman or some other large financial institution. You're like, but, but these people get over the line and our thing will be in market. We can talk about a real material benefit. If you start by trying to go right after the, the biggest players, like you will inevitably, you will inevitably uh, skip or miss some feature or some area that you should have found and spotted and, and built. And if you, if you're not getting those insights early on, then you're going to run into problems, you know, when you're testing with the big guys yeah. and you know, that's a much more painful time to screw that up.
I, w- I often say to founders, imagine the next meeting you have, you can say, Hey, we've done, we've done this amount of decisioning. You know, we, we're, we're deployed with live with this customer. We've done this number of transactions versus like, Oh yeah, we're, we're totally working with them. Like it's, it's, it's such a, it's a stepwise difference in the, the confidence even and then the credibility. And I think that also in addition to refining the product. Ross, you mentioned one mistake or perhaps mistake fintechs uh, often make is not hiring a great GC, you know, fast enough. What are other mistakes or underrated things that early fintechs often don't do, but should spend more time doing or vice versa, <laughs> spend too much time doing that they shouldn't be doing? Yeah, I guess I, I think about the, the patterns I've seen that have, have made maybe the, the, some of the hidden patterns that have made some of the big fin, fintech companies big. One of which is this focus on the customer that will work with you as well as the customer that you eventually want to work with because is the fastest path to market where you can see your product run end to end. So the example of Nova and Empower, the example of Nova and its first property management, I think is a great one. And when you dig into different customer stories, I think that comes up a lot. I'll give you some funny examples. I actually think that, um, that you can't just, you can't spend enough time, uh, with the regulators and under, and understanding the regulation in, in, in your business. Um, those things are often expensive. They're time consuming. They're not sexy. But whether it's, you know, we became an, we, we became an RAA, RIA, whether, you know, the stories we became a broker dealer, whether it's, we've spent the time to go through our security and compliance audits, audits. I think the biggest thing is that you don't win with those, but they're such a benefit for you in credibility with other partners. Maybe the biggest thing to point out is that people don't realize that those things need to get done. There's a real cost to them. And so you should start them early and get them rolling. And so I think a lot of the best companies have done that. They, they have this story of like, you know, we've, we've gone through that process. We've got another company that's a, that's a mortgage lender. And step one was, Basically, the both founders, a technologist, and a very, very senior executive from Fannie Mae had gone and became and gotten licensed first as real estate brokers and then on as lenders and kind of like walked that chain up. And then that's paid dividends because they understood the business better. It actually paid dividends because everyone they talked to, like they really understood their pain. It's sort of like, and the team at Lyft would also talk about the fact they were Lyft drivers. They've just, you've just gone through the work of compliance. So you're not, you're doing more than check the box. Where do you see the space going? What, what are the trends? What can we expect in the future? One of the trends I keep getting really excited about is, you know, how, how do you think about an increasingly globalized world that is also increasingly digital and, you know, how financial services needs to, needs to evolve to respond to that? And you start to think about how the definition of how, you know, a financial services company, you know, a bank, a lender, doesn't necessarily have to be confined to the borders of, of, of one country, right? The same way that, you know, Ross today could, you know, apply online for a credit card here in the U.S. and establish a checking account here. And there are ways to do that. Like, if you can prove that Ross is a real person, you can manage the fraud, you can actually underwrite him. You know, the only thing that's that's blocking Ross's ability from doing the same thing and getting a credit card in Canada, the UK, Japan, you know, name another economy is, is really just no one's built those systems and the regulations. And so, you know, as, as I look forward, one of the things I get really excited about is you can think of a world where, you know, a Japanese bank can actually serve 
consumers anywhere in the world. And, and you can see a world where developing economies and lower and higher cost of capital economies can uh, allow their consumers to borrow at, at lower rates and connecting them directly with, with capital in lower cost economies. And, and starting to really think about banking and financial services is not just these, you know, these fiefdoms confined to a single country, but actually as global networks uh, and global capital flow to directly to, to consumers. It actually, it's, it's so reminiscent of your initial story of, uh, initial story about Nova, of like the difference in APR of your student loan versus your credit card, the difference in APR lending in one country versus the next. It just points to massive opp- opportunity. If you know, it's going to be a, you know, 18% in India and it's going to be 4% here. Well, what are the underlying assets? It just, it just points to need. You know, there's, there's so much opportunity and, and so much inefficiency as you think about the global banking space, right? Like, you know, the U.S. mortgage space is an example, which obviously is, is, is subsidized by, by the, the, the federal government. But, you know, there are, you know, if you can, if you can prove that, you know, somebody is a, you know, somebody in Mexico, as an example, is a risk equal to somebody in the U.S. Uh, and there, are, you know, there are ways that, that we can do that. Then those two consumers should be able to to borrow at at similar rates, but there are structural reasons for for why that's really hard to to do today. Um, and and one of the things I get most excited about is how you you can you can start to build a world where you're you're letting people borrow for less and, and accelerating growth and in, in developing economies by by doing that. And this is I think a reason why Nova in particular and fintech infrastructure is so exciting is because. You just describe like this, this should just be possible. There's just all this friction. So if you can collapse the friction, it'll just happen. It'll happen in the order of like billions and billions of dollars will just shift. You know, it's funny, uh, a mutual friend of ours is working on this, uh, very, uh, significant project around, um, planning of central banks. And I was talking to her about like, you know, cause the changing landscape. She's like, yeah. And I'm like, cause of crypto. She's like, no, <laughs> it's because everything is global now. It's like you know, there is no central bank sitting sitting there in isolation. They're thinking about like how do they service everyone in the entire planet. In fact, some of the smallest countries in the world are the most smallest in terms of population are becoming some of the most substantial bank players. And so and enabling that process. I mean, there's no bigger mission to be on, right? Zooming out a little bit macro, let's pretend that we uh, collectively were running a fintech fund in focus just on fintechs. Ross, you described, described a little bit about your, your fintech infrastructure thesis. You mentioned companies like Nova, companies like Plaid. What are other companies or subsectors that would fit within that thesis slash what's your sort of request for startups or where do you think people should be innovating more or experimenting more? Or what would you like to go see people build? I want to see people do more hard things. Every part of the, the infrastructure space still needs to get rebuilt. I think AML, KY, KYC is a, is a big one. There are a number of interesting players there, but I don't think, I don't think the perfect company has been built yet. I think there's a huge amount still to be done in security that could get built. A concrete example is where is the best consumer security two-factor authentication, and then why doesn't that exist for every security, excuse me, for every significant financial track transaction I go do. I think there's a lot to be done in decomposing financial services, places where someone is, where an existing player is getting paid for both the lending of money and then the servicing, if you can come in and decouple those, where you know you can build a business say that's getting paid for the servicing and uh, passing off the lending to somebody else. I think those are really com- compelling businesses. Actually, education, uh, loans around education are a really interesting place because I think we're going to see massive defaults in the U.S. around education lending. 
I'm not alone in doing that. It's somewhat obvious that we've got that happening. Okay. Therefore, what opportunities is, is that, is that gonna, is that gonna create? I think is another big one. And how do you not get caught in the, in the downside of that? I'd also like to see people creating second derivative companies. That is, what is something that is really hard for all financial service, all for new fintech companies to do that you can make faster? So com- compliance is a big part of that. We're talking about compliance technology right now. What are compliance solutions that existed that would speed up Nova's regulatory or reduce Nova's regulatory burden? Cause you would adopt those products if they, if they helped you. Um, I think that stuff's really interesting. You know, one thing you can also go do is look at everywhere where there are hundreds of people, whether take the credit bureaus doing still paperwork and where can you go automate that process? I think companies like, you know, Instabase and Palantir have built phenomenal businesses where they superpower the people that right now are working in financial services and those people are getting paid a lot of money and there are a lot of them. How can you go and just take a whole chunk of that business and said, I'm going to have a third as many people, but they're going to do that job so much more cost effectively. That tends to overlap with, with compliance tends to overlap with customer onboarding. Yeah. And I mean, the world that I spend all my time thinking about is is obviously around how how do you create better data infrastructure to create better decisions in, you know, the financial services space. And I think there's just, there's still so much low hanging fruit for, for smart teams who have a long-term perspective. You know, think about all of the bank transaction data innovation that's happened across, you know, Plaid, Quovo, Finicity, Yodley. I think that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg for, for what can be built there. I mean, those, all of those systems are, you know, as powerful as they have been. They are still confined to getting a user through the username and password process to, to, in order to unlock all of this incredible bank transaction data. But there are, you know, there are other uh, data sources that are incredibly powerful from a decisioning perspective you know, are outside of that realm, right? And most people refer to that, you know, obviously as like alternative data, but there are pockets that could be used in the income space, in the payroll space, in the tax space, uh, in the utility space, in the e-commerce space, in the credit card transaction data space that you could unlock uh, if you could create, you know, the right infrastructure and, and plugging that into the right decision engines could create a lot of value for a lot of people. Oh my God. Yeah. I completely forgot, um, um, the revolution that's currently going on in, uh, in payroll, like Instapay, whether, you know, even, uh, after hours wage stream in the UK, this is changing the way that lending works where it just, you know, you're, you're getting money based on the work you've already done. And it's, it's really interesting because it's changing access to capital for, you know, the 50% of the population that we don't think of as, as much that's, that, that's working every day. And, you know, that also just exists all over the world. People that they're getting paid on an hourly basis. And I think that's going to be a fun. I mean, it's going to destroy, it's going to hopefully zero out the, the payday loan business because you'll be able to get, you know, some capital that way. But I think that's a, that's a huge shift. The stuff that comes off of plaid success is going to be really interesting. Uh, they, they could potentially enable a similar level of decisioning that came from FICO. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's right. I think, I think that the, the jury's still out on how to, how do you really go mainstream with that? Right. Because, uh, ultimately you still need to clear consumer authentication, like consumer, like username, password, which is basically like authentication versus the traditional bureau process where you just need the person's 
you know, identity. They don't really have to authenticate themselves in the same way. And, you know, how, how can you remove friction from that process is, is one of the biggest challenges that is still out there. Yeah, it's interesting though, but, um, you know, so one, I think we'll see a new, see a new identity provider, whether it's Plaid or somebody else, someone else is going to instantly vouch for you. The second is that we've seen countries where this has happened. So in Colombia, for example, they have a universal identity situation you can auth into. And that identity then could be used to access that identity proves you are who you say you are. And then you're just accessing, well, you know, and what, what do you know about me? Um, what do you build on top of that? It's another example, just friction, you know, coming out. That's a huge enabler. But on the data thing, it's something I really struggle with. I, um, spend so much time looking at lending companies that I used to say, like, all the lending companies either tell you they have a marketing advantage or they have a data advantage. And all the data advantage people are lying to you. It, basically, everybody's SoFi. Everybody is, it's, it's actually, excuse me, all of the opportunities are SoFi. They're a better marketing story to a poorly priced audience. And I thought that for so long that I now think I might be missing places where there's a new data asset that could be backed. But for so long, people were like, well, we'll lend based on Facebook or based on how many Instagram likes you get or the number of connections in LinkedIn, all these other signals that they, they actually haven't been good predictive signals, you know? Well, the ones that are easy to get haven't proven to be predictive signals, but there are, there are still very valuable pieces of information from an underwriting perspective that are incredibly hard to get access to. And if you can gain access to them in a more seamless, in a more seamless and automated way without like meaningful user drop off, like, that there's still a lot of arbitrage you can capture there. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd love to see more clever approaches to doing that. An interesting example would be if you could get into the um, more either lending and or e-commerce flows. You could optimize that flow based on the the risk uh, of a person, and then you know use that data to make decisioning. And we'll see if one day a firm ends up doing that, or somebody else that's in some subset of those flows. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff that's happening in, in the Chinese fintech space, I think, is an example of what, you know, if if there were looser regulations here or more clear regulations, you know, could actually unlock a lot of value in the U.S. I mean, obviously, there's challenges around disparate impact and adverse action. You know, for, for example, using all of your mobile phone data and app usage data, like which apps are you opening, which ones are you using the most? Like there are entire businesses in China built on uh, synthesizing that information into the decision process. And at least I haven't seen anyone attempt that here in, in, in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, we actually don't have a good overlap between the people that have that data right now and the financial institutions. Maybe that's a good thing for, for U.S. consumers because we don't trust those people. But it's definitely an opportunity. Yeah, the 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 pattern to the to the to China is an interesting one. I mean, whether Ten Ten or Ant, I mean they're they're so dominant. It's interesting to figure out like what what are the lessons learned there. In closing, Misha, for people who want to learn more about Nova Credit and and uh, where should, would you point them and what should they stay tuned for? Uh, we've got an exciting you know 2019 ahead of us. Uh, our website's www.novacredit.com. Uh, feel free to shoot me a note. And yeah, a lot of exciting stuff on the horizon. Awesome. Thank you both for coming to this podcast. It's been a great episode. Thank you. Thanks. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 